0: And thank you for tuning in to The Green Majority from CIUT in Toronto. We are a platform for informed environmental dissent. Lauren wanted to uh, switch things up a bit this week instead of freaking out immediately. Wanted to begin beginning on a lighter tone.
1: Yeah, we're, we're trying something new here at The Green Majority. We'll see how it goes. If everybody hates it, we'll never do it again, but we're starting this week off just with a quick go-around. What have you been considering this week? And we'll start with you, David. Would love to know what you have been thinking about this week. What's on your mind?
0: The ineffable glory of the sky and uh, the way that the clouds endlessly move through it and the moisture it will occasionally precipitate downwards on the earthlings, and uh, the cold wind that has begun to gust it as well.
1: Wow, that was poetic. So when you're talking about the sky, you're, like, you're referring to like the lower, like, like the stratosphere levels, right? We're not getting into like beyond the atmosphere?
0: Whatever is visible by the eye or the imagination.
1: Wow, okay, I like that. Starting us off on a really beautiful note. Thank you, David. Moving on to you, Stefan, what have you been thinking about this week?
2: I'm currently reading this book, and the second essay is by Janine Banyas, who talks about ecology, how ecology as a field got sort of swept up in the individualistic belief of the mid 1900s, basically to a point where it was deeply led astray as to how plants worked together you know seemingly taken over by the cultural deification of market approaches ecologists tried to understand everything in terms of competition so that each plant was always fighting some other plant and they were always you know competing for resources which was a belief that ended up causing honestly some significant damage to ecosystems as humans tried to manage this fact before it fell out of vogue when it ultimately in failed to adequately explain so much of what we see in this natural world. And so as this individualistic view waned, ecological facilitation, which describes species interactions that benefit at least one of the participants and cause no harm to either, returned to prominence. And as we prepare ourselves for the next 10 years or so, which I think in many ways began today, I think the 10 years of fight for climate begin the day we are recording this, which is Wednesday, January 20th, 2021. Organizers and humans should take a lesson from plants. You know, who can cast a shadow for another who needs the shade? Who can create canopies to bring the rain? And who can be the mycelium that sits beneath the surface, connecting and nourishing the whole? All these talents are needed, and it's just about finding your place. So, Lauren, what are you thinking about this week?
1: Apparently, rumor has it canceling Enbridge's line three pipeline is on Biden's executive order to do list Um, and how if he were to cancel it, I won't say I won't go as far as to say that's rad, but I will say it's pretty sick. Line three is a pipeline we don't often talk about. I know it's one that like we haven't really spent too much time on, at least on this show. Um, and we tend not to talk about it because it's like really close to completion. And it's a replacement of a pipeline that has already been in existence since since the 60s. So it's not like forging new territory, but it is it's, it's renewing and and slightly expanding. Obviously, this wasn't Biden's idea. Bernie was the first one to talk about it on the campaign trail, followed by Warren and Inslee. But I'm kind of hopeful for it. The fact that Biden lived up to his commitment of canceling XL on day one bodes really well because it demonstrates, I think, to Trudeau that Biden's not super keen on playing politics or kowtowing to big oil, at least not on the surface, sort of overtly the way Trudeau does. I'm kind of hopeful that with Biden playing like big brother and taking the lead and we willing to be a little bit braver here when it comes to sort of that that pathway to decarbonization, Trudeau might actually fall follow suit and and be a little bit bolder himself because I think Biden making those strong moves sort of insulates Trudeau from as much criticism as he would have faced before because it gives him someone to point to and say he did it not me.
0: Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr. was thankfully not assassinated this week as he was sworn in to lead the great nation of America out of its tragic mass death and self inflicted hysteria, during which its narrow hunger for power was shown for what it is even if there is a real human freedom yearning somewhere there in the mess. During the ceremony, a Christian priest whose denomination I can't recall called on the holy mystery of love to be with Americans as they dream together, before an almost egregiously girthy Garth Brooks strutted out to sing Amazing Grace in a black cowboy hat. Biden said that, History, faith, and reason show the way to unity. Unity is the path forward. And we have never, ever, ever failed in America when we have acted together. And young poet Amanda Gorman said, Catastrophe will never prevail over us, and there is always light if we're brave enough to be it. There was also some lovely singing from J. Lo and Lady Gaga. Donald Trump gave a speech prior to the inauguration, in which he said, quote, What we've done has been amazing by any standard. And it's true that even while many of us knew Trump was a thrashing catastrophe, we have still been amazed by the extent to which the states have dissolved into division, mass death, violent racism, and a headlong assault on the life-sustaining ecologies of this tiny planet. Trump also said, quote, we will be back in some form, and at a different event recently uh, said that their movement had only just begun. He may only want to maintain the facade of a right-wing paramilitary movement in order to continue milking his followers for money and love, but the wake of his tirades has exposed close to 150 sitting congresspeople as being forthrightly anti-democratic, some of whom were elected because of his movement, and left a huge cohort of violent white fascists prepared to kill politicians and police, wondering where they should go from here. Even though some of these insurrectionists feel betrayed by Trump, it's his rhetoric, along with economic dissonance and ingrained racism, that has inflamed their hatred and made space for their organizing, and many of them are prepared to move on without him. If Joe Biden tries to go back to a pre-Trump status quo, as some of his recent appointments and his entire 36-year record as a politician imply, popular anti-government anger will only grow, and any bold environmental reforms he might undertake will be undermined by an attempt to maintain the power structures that have delivered us these interlocking disasters. It's especially important to look behind the veil of power if we're to avoid wholesale environmental catastrophe, since greenwashing and feel-good intentions have been used to precipitate this catastrophe for profit for so long. BlackRock, the investment firm that commands almost $8 trillion, for instance, said a year ago that it was embracing climate finance, but is still investing $85 billion in coal worldwide, including the building of new plants. The difficulty of implementing environmental reform in the states is compounded by Trump's having already dismantled so much environmental law. Even in the past few days, he did everything he could to help the industries that are the worst for the environment, by opening up huge areas for more mining, thereby continuing the great North American tradition of indigenous land theft, which we know so well here in Canada, making it cheaper to drill public lands, exempting companies from emissions limits, and reducing even more protections for endangered species. Some of Trump's attacks on ecosystems could be quickly reversed, and still others might continue to be invalidated by courts, as has recently happened to an attempt to allow coal plants to pollute more, but it's not yet clear how much damage has been done and in what ways, or what might be used as an excuse by the Biden administration for not doing more. And as Stefan mentioned more than once on this show, The 50-50 split in the Senate means that people are going to be looking to appease a typically anti-environmental Joe Manchin, the conservative Democrat from West Virginia, to get environmental reforms through Congress. One thing Biden, of course, did just a few hours after he was sworn in was use executive order to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline for a second time. The recent news that he was promising to do so had Alberta Premier Jason Kenney in a terrible clenching ball of anxiety, since he already sunk billions of dollars into the pipeline under the apparent assumption that Trump would win the election. As an illustration of the kind of diseased thinking that continues to plague our collective approach to ecosystems, Jason Kenney's celebratory Keystone XL video from mid-October featured a caption reading, quote, Albertans are the owners of the third largest reserves of oil in the world. On the one hand, this is a ridiculous claim that because you were born within certain political boundaries, you own all the non-human species that live there, and on the other, it's a rhetorical device meant to get people to identify personally with the oil sector and to buy into a system that doesn't primarily benefit the average person. In any case, it is not making Kenny look very intelligent, and a few days ago he was essentially begging Joe Biden to reconsider, suggesting that Canadian-American relations were themselves on the line, and saying that Alberta was prepared to sue for the costs it has incurred, meaning all the money he himself chose to pour into it. Justin Trudeau also supported Keystone, and a great majority of Canadian officials appeared to be in agreement that we should spend more money and political capital in order to pump more oil sands bitumen into the United States.
2: For those of you who remember our show four years ago, after Trump won, you will know that we expected the worst. And I think it's fair to say that most of what has occurred could have been and honestly was predicted from the day he took power. Perhaps the only surprise being the 400,000 Americans he's allowed to die in a pandemic that he consistently downplayed. And so the fact that today he is not in power is worthy, at very least, of a breath. But just one. Because those of you who, you know, listened to the show during the primaries, you'll know that Biden is anything but a cure-all. Though significant kudos does go to Sunrise Movement and other groups in moving him effectively on climate. But still, the massive task of pushing this administration and those across the globe begins now. And secondly... Unity is not the answer. If Biden spends the next four years trying to get avowed white nationalists along with him and his belief, or if he believes that the ne- that you, you have to find a way to go in an actual, truly meaningful sense of unity, he will find himself stymied at every turn. No worse plan. And, you can, and it is honestly... Incomprehensible to me that you could make the argument that you that we must have that they must have unity in a country which straight up has one side of the set of people and a set of white nationalists wishing death upon a host of not just marginalized communities but lawmakers all the way up to the vice president of the United States uh, and now both the vice president and the president. So a lot of work is to be done. And I have more thoughts than Canada, which we'll get to in a second. But like, there still is a bit of a moment of like, Trump can't nuke someone right now. And that's not bad.
1: No, absolutely. On the sort of note about unity, not necessarily being the answer. Um, I totally agree. And that's not for, for the casual listener. We're not saying unity is a bad thing, because unity is inherently a bad thing. And calm and peace aren't good things. But it's it's the idea that there's a subset of the American population that's not insignificant that isn't that isn't just like non-democratic it's 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 actively hateful and dangerous um and and I think not only is the sort of unity approach potentially like ethically dubious like you said it's also just it's it's going to be stymied at every turn I don't know how practical it is um something that and maybe this is just in my own Twitter bubble but something that I keep sort of seeing Um, coming up in the language around dealing with this subset of the population that is so actively hateful and dangerous and like ready to throw, um, to like throw hands, um, is, is this concept that like deprogramming has to happen and like deprogramming the way you would um, like deprogram a cult member. um, And that this deprogramming has to happen on a massive national scale and, Um, how, how, how people don't know how that's going to work. People don't know how, how that's going to pan out. Um, because even if you look at like the most extreme of the extreme, like the the QAnon subset, there are hundreds of thousands of people who subscribe to, or are seemingly, um, followers of the whole like QAnon philosophy, if you want to call it that. Um, and, and how deprogramming hundreds of thousands of people has never been done at one time. It's normally a one-on-one process. It's very, it takes a really long time. And I almost feel like, as I'm saying this right now, I feel like the thing that America is going to have to do is like, go back and study what post-war Germany was like and what getting over such um, like bigotry is too soft a word to use, but like, how do you, how do you completely flip the mindset of an entire population of a nation Um, so, so, so that they understand that folks who don't look like them are in fact human and are worthy of respect and care and love and, um, and a president who represents them and has their best interest at heart. Um, anyway, yeah, again, one of those situations where I don't necessarily have a, have a point that I'm building up to, but just, um. That country has a long way to go. And I think as Canadians, we we have to acknowledge and accept the fact that it means that we also have a long way to go because we pull so much from America culturally. I'm sure some listeners are like, you're a Canadian podcast or a Canadian radio show. Why do you spend so much time talking about the States? But it's because we are irrevocably harnessed to them, culturally speaking. Um, So to a degree, what happens in the States happens here too. And we know that as much as there is bigotry and hatred and anger in the States, those same, those same um, trends are reflected on this side of the border as well. Um, so yeah, good to take a big deep breath, but long way to go.
2: And especially for those of us in Canada, because the way our Canadian government responded to this was terrible. Our leaders continue to be clown themselves. Both Trudeau and the Environmental Minister Wilkinson have been speaking out of both sides of their mouths, saying that that in Biden, they will find a climate ally in Canada, while their government continued up until the very last second to push for the approval of Keystone XL. This zombie pipeline, for those of you who may be younger or new to the movement, you need to understand that Keystone XL has been a fight which has lasted the entirety of my 10 years or so being in the environmental movement. And it's been around before that. It was old news when I began to hear about this 10 years ago. It has been a fight that has been going on for so long that probably there are climate activists right now in Fridays of Future who were not born when the fight began, and yet here we are, still are. And then we have Kenny, who is speaking out of only one mouth, to his credit, But he's admonishing this move while having funneled billions of dollars into the project, all while knowing it was likely doomed. As Dave mentioned above, the only way to read him doing this was that he was betting on a Trump victory. Biden has been pretty clear he was canceling this for a very long time. And the actions you were taking exclusively mean you believe that either Biden was going to lie, which not a great look, or that he thought Trump was going to win, an even worse look. And so, this is great news. But like for those of us in Canada, we have to look back at the as you Lauren mentioned even you know earlier on, we have very much decided in Canada that we are still controlled by the oil industry, which at least up front Biden has been like I'm going to take some swings from day
1: one. There was a statement that came out of the PMO the the Prime Minister's Office today, um, and I won't read the whole thing though it is short. It's been circulating on Twitter. I'm just going to read up two sentences. Earlier today, this is supposed to be a statement being issued from from the PMO. Earlier today, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States of America. While we welcome the president's commitment to fight climate change, we are disappointed but acknowledge the president's decision to fulfill his election campaign promise on Keystone XL. It then goes on to talk about how, like, I spoke directly with President Biden in November, stating the case for it, blah, 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 Um, talking about, how it's bad economically speaking and then and then the last two paragraphs are talking about how it's like oh but it's great that he's decided to come back for the paris agreement stuff like that and it's and it's like you said like it's i understand that trudeau has to or thinks he has to appease western voters who are still pro-oil and and western politicians but like, this is a tacky statement, this idea that you can all at once be like, I'm so glad you're coming back on board with Paris. We welcome you with open arms as climate as climate champions, but we really wish you'd put in our pipeline like we asked you to. And and at this point, it's like, I know the question all along has been, has Trudeau actually wanted these pipelines to go through or is he just saving face for the sake of Western votes? And at this point, I really don't know. In I would love to believe that Trudeau is sitting and Sussex, like breathing a sigh of relief that Keystone is over, but I'm not sure. Either way, this statement today was so frustrating and so annoying. And I think it looks, I think it makes Trudeau look really bad for this to be the very first statement that he issues with this president.
0: Yet another example of the disturbing uncertainty clouding the future of our ecosystems has come from scientists writing for the journal Science Advances who have new evidence showing that major forests like the Canadian boreal It's boreal? Boreal. Boreal?
1: Boreal. Yeah. Oh my god, I just bought a bath bomb called boreal. Sorry.
0: Who have new evidence showing that major forests like the Canadian bore... boreal? Boreal? Are those boreal. No, it's boreal. 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 Jesus.
1: Like, like oriole, Like a bird? Yeah. yeah okay. Oriel,
0: but Boreal. Like the Canadian Boreal. That's it? Boreal. Yeah. Could start releasing more carbon than they absorb uh, under current warming trends as early as 2040. This is because rising temperatures change the breathing patterns of trees. With this in mind, we turn to a Canadian company, Enbridge, that is doing its best to ram its oil sands pipeline through indigenous land in Minnesota, with at least 47 resistors having been arrested so far. Winona LaDuke told DeSmog, "...heavier and heavier equipment comes, and the devastation of the project becomes clear. From the right-of-way given to Enbridge to the 630 million gallons of water Enbridge is allowed to discharge from wetlands and through pipes... They are saying, in effect, we will brutalize your village, we will drive our equipment over your medicines, and then we will bring in the drill and drill under your rivers. The company is gunning for the 22 river crossings, with seven crews. Another company, Recon Africa, began exploratory drilling last month in an important wetland in a conservation area in Namibia. It is the home of the biggest remaining population of African elephants and other important species, and with a potential 20,000 wells to be drilled there, could harm the water resources in both Namibia and Botswana. And Canadian waters themselves have been newly opened up for exploratory drilling from a foreign entity, since the federal government is welcoming the Norwegian company Equinor to start three exploration projects off Newfoundland. The company might not end up doing the drilling, but if oil investment returns to what it was before the pandemic, they could build as many as 30 exploration wells off the coast of Saint John's. Julie Eleven of, Enmi- of Environmental Defense argued that expanding offshore drilling would make it impossible for Canada to meet our emissions targets.
2: I hope the breath we got in the first segment uh, has got us ready for the rest, because you know this is our reality. While we're unquestionably seeing the impact uh, of removing the social license of oil, the number of fronts this battle is waged on is innumerable. And you know, it's been very well documented that found oil is already more than enough to blow past the limit that we can burn within the Paris Agreement, and so the question has to be asked, why are nations that have committed to these plans still looking for new oil? The hypocrisy cannot stand. And honestly, it's ultimately quite damaging to the public trust. You know, it's as Lauren mentioned in the last segment, you cannot say you are committed to climate change and be exploring for new oil at the same time or creating new infrastructure to produce, to bring some more oil. We are done with that part of our lives. If we're going to take this seriously, you can't do both. And so, and ultimately the act of doing both is quite damaging both to public trust and our collective ability to shift culture to that we're actually trying to take this seriously. You know, the person who likes driving isn't going to stop driving or try to buy an electric vehicle if the the leaders of the nation are still deciding that they can make get rich off oil. It just is not a reality we can live in.
1: Earlier today, I was talking with uh, Robin Tress of the Council of Canadians about the um exploratory offshore drilling that was approved last week um it's a it's an interview that's going to air on a future episode um in the next couple of weeks but but something robin specifically said because i was talking about that that sort of i think the phrase i used was cognitive dissonance i was like how do you have a government or a, an environment minister who's like so committed to climate change oh because i was talking specifically about the idea that there are so many um perspective um, marine protected areas on the East coast. Well, at the same time, there are all these exploration projects that have been present, are starting up. And in some cases, Robin goes into it, they're not even responsible for cleanup after. Anyway, it's bananas. But I was like, that cognitive dissonance is insane. And what she responded with is that like, well, Lauren, it's not cognitive dis- dissonance, it's corporate capture of government. And it's like, that's that's exactly it. That's what it comes down to. I think, I think when sometimes we we're so gobsmacked, we're like, how is this possible? How do we have a prime minister and a government that's like, we're climate leaders, we're so glad you're back in in the Paris Agreement, Joe Biden, but we wish you'd given us a pipeline or we're happy to continue with this offshore drilling. It's not cognitive dissonance. These aren't unintelligent people. These aren't blind spots. These are intentional choices that they make every single day and they make these choices because it's beneficial to them financially or they believe it's beneficial to the economy financially, when in actual, it's, it's not beneficial to the everyday person at all. It's only beneficial to corporate shareholders, CEOs, and the elite and the 1%. Like, yeah, I feel like it's something that I actually need to resolve to do, is, is to understand that it's not cognitive dissonance. These are decisions that these people make every day.
0: Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. Members of the Kawartha Nishnabe First Nation recently blocked a dam reconstruction in Burley Falls, Ontario, saying they were never consulted. Parks Canada did consult with Curve Lake First Nation, and has defended their process, but apparently admitted they did not know Kawartha Nishnabe existed. The Mohawk Council of Gunasatage, is taking Oka and Quebec to court because the Oka municipality is trying to pass a bylaw to claim the Pines Forest as a municipal heritage site, even though it's on Mohawk land. Grand Chief Sir Otzi Simon told APTN News, quote, They've taken our land, they took our children, they took our resources, they took our language, they took our culture. You know what? They've taken all they're going to take now. We're taking back. The RCMP has charged 23 people who this past October took part in the mobbing of two lobster pounds in Nova Scotia to intimidate Mi'kmaq fishers into giving up their treaty rights. One of the pounds was burned to the ground four days later. Sibignagati chief Michael Sack said there are another 150 people who were involved and that the charges laid are only a slap on the wrist. In a bit of good news from the west coast. The Nanwakolas Council, uh, representing five First Nations in BC, reached an agreement with several forestry companies to protect old-growth cedars and allow new ones to grow. The UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination sent a letter to Canada's UN Rep last month shaming us for continuing to build the Coastal GasLink Pipeline, the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, as well as the Site C Dam, because we did not obtain what it calls the free, prior, and informed consent of the indigenous peoples whose lands these projects are being built on. Finally, in a recent interview with APTN, Murray Sinclair, member of the Canadian Senate and former chairman of the Indian Residential Schools Truth and Reconciliation Commission, said, quote, Public school systems basically taught white supremacy, saying that the white Europeans who came here and settled saved this country from being nothing. And therefore, they teach the myth of white superiority. And these twin myths of indigenous inferiority and white superiority are the terrible results of the public school system.
2: The only thing I can really say to this segment is, let that information sit before you decide that Canada is devoid of the problems that we referenced earlier about the states. They may be different, but the battle against white supremacy in Canada is just as, needs to be just as fierce uh, as the ones we see in the States, because it is just as alive as here as it is anywhere else.
1: Going back to the very first one about um, the uh, members of the Kawartha Anishinaabe First Nation uh, blocking a dam in Burley Falls, Ontario, um, saying they were never consulted. I'm sorry, Park's coming back saying they didn't know that Kawartha Anishinaabe existed, as the body that was supposed to be carrying out consultations for that project, either A, you're admitting your incompetence and that you're unfit to be, and and that this um, consultation process wasn't sufficient because you literally didn't know about a community that was there that needed to be consulted so either either it's insufficient and you're admitting your incompetence or b you're lying neither one of those possibilities bodes well both indicate that your um that your consultation process is invalid and you need to go back to the starting board again or the drawing board rather um Yeah. And it's, and I feel like that's, that, that story is kind of what we continuously come up against when you're dealing with issues around consultation and free prior and informed consent in Canada, you're either getting, um, an advisory body or a consultative body that, that either feigns ignorance or just like, abjectly like eschews their, (laughs) their responsibility to to a community because like it's there's still this idea and it's and it's one of the reasons that I'm still so skeptical about the Trudeau government's commitment to UNDRIP despite the fact they say they're going to like enshrine it in law it's it's like mm, we have to start to understand and take into consideration the fact that indigenous communities aren't stakeholders the way um workers or stakeholders, or the way that um, maybe a given industry is a stakeholder. They're rights holders. It's different. If they say no, or if they say you didn't consult us the way you should have, that means full stop. They have, they should theoretically have just as much say about a project going forward as Parks Canada, more so than Parks Canada, because Parks Canada is just an agency within the government. Like it's, that yeah all of those stories make me really upset but that first one especially it's just it it because it throws into relief the gross incompetence and negligence that is continuously at play here
2: We are at the interview section of our show, uh, and we're super excited to be joined by Matthew Lee Pelkey, the co-founder of Climate Pledge Collective. Welcome, Matthew.
3: Hi. Hello. Hello, everybody.
2: Thanks so much for joining us. So let's dive right in. Your organization is called Climate Pledge Collective. And so what do you do?
3: Uh, We're a small organization. I started it with my wife feeling a lot of climate anxiety, as I know a lot of people are, and I just needed to do something. So the idea of the organization is that we try to make tools so that ordinary people can take action on climate change. We might do some small petitions, or we did a climate picnic thing when people were allowed to go outside, if you remember going outside. And then, yeah, we try to make things that are sort of scalable, that you can do on your own, that you can do with other people, that that have a big effect in sort of raising awareness about climate change or pressuring different organizations to change their ways or policies. Awesome.
2: And so we invited you on because you're sort of ramping up one of these campaigns, specifically something called Bank Switch. So can you describe what this campaign
3: is? Uh, Yeah, Bank Switch is a campaign to pressure the Canadian banks to change their policies, especially about lending uh, to fossil fuel companies. We're at a point where if we burn even just the developed reserves that we have in the world, we're going to go over one and a half degrees of warming. So there's no need for like new exploration, new projects. And yet the big five Canadian banks are still pouring hundreds of millions of dollars uh, into this sort of activity. And even since the Paris Agreement, they've pumped almost $500 billion US, 630 billion Canadian into fossil fuel companies. So Bank Switch is about getting ordinary Canadians to talk to their branch managers and tell them that they won't put up with this. And that at a time in 2021 that's convenient for you, we're we're suggesting Earth Day, but it's a lot of it's a lot of work to move all your stuff that you will move to the most sustainable bank that you can find. Uh, Right now, that isn't any of the big five Canadian banks, although they're you can tell they're feeling the pressure because they're coming out with some statements, new policies sort of tinkering around the edges. So they are starting to compete in this space, which is interesting. Right now you would be going to a credit union. Uh, There's some large ones in the Toronto area. Ideally, one of the big banks will come around on this and really put down their foot and realize that it's bad. It's a bad investment for them and it's bad for the planet. And they'll start to really take action on this and you'll be able to switch to another big bank or even maybe stay with your own bank, depending on what the policies are.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. This is clearly one of a number of different directions that the banks are being pressured. We're having a conversation in either next week or the following with some of us, which uses shareholders to pressure banks into uh, into actually doing better reporting and some better some better ESG work and stuff like that. And so it's interesting that there's clearly this multi-pronged approach, trying to pressure and encourage banks to improve both what they're doing, and, but also like, to me, the, the thing here, which is sort of similar to the divestment campaigns more generally, is that part of the angle, and correct me if I'm wrong, is about social uh, license. You know, it's like that the society is trying to remove the social license from these fossil fuel investments and doing it in every different direction.
3: Yeah, no, I think that makes sense is that this is just not, there's no good argument anymore for expanding fossil fuel production. Like we might need a little bit because we have a lot of existing infrastructure. We have cars that people are driving right now, but we have the reserves to fuel all those cars already. We don't need to keep expanding, growing, growing. We have to be making the opposite switch. So you're exactly right that we're trying to sort of take the social license away and tell banks that you can't be working on this. Like there's, And I think that's why we want people to talk to their branch managers and get the conversation going inside the banks too, because we know there are people in the banks already saying this, like a bank like this is a big organization and there are some people on one side of every issue and some people on the other side. And the people who are saying put more money into fossil fuels are still winning because it's still profitable. So we have to sort of come at it from a lot of angles. And the more I think even in the bank, they talk about it, the more they're going to realize they can't, it doesn't, it doesn't hold water. You just can't do it anymore for so many reasons. Like you have the political risk that these projects like Keystone XL just got canceled. The banks lost a lot of money on that. So they're not even like necessarily good investments anymore. So the the more you can come at them from different angles, the more I think they're going to realize that it just has to stop and we have to move on to something else.
2: Yeah. It, it's funny actually being following different versions of the divestment campaign for the last you know, five, 10 years, given the fact that over the past at least five years, it can be shown that you know, the S&P 500 generally is outperforming fossil fuel stocks. Like you could just have bought the market and avoid fossil fuel stocks and you'd be doing better than not. Like it turns out the random kids yelling at their universities 10 years ago, actually pretty good financial planners. You would be richer now if you thought, listen to them.
3: Yeah. I, t- I think about that at U of T a lot, actually. I'm a U of T. Well, I'm on a leave from a PhD right now, but because of taking care of my daughter during COVID, but Merrick Gertler, denied the sort of divestment plan that was approved by the governing council uh, unilaterally. And then he lost a lot of money to do it, right? Like it would have been a much better investment if he had taken their thing. So he thought, oh, these, all these radicals, I have to stop them. But really it was the good financial decision and the good ethical decision. And he, he, he kiboshed it for no good reason.
2: So, so let's, let's dive in a little bit more to this bank switch tactic. Why did you choose this particular angle?
3: Yeah, I think that's a good question. There have been sort of campaigns like this before. You know, I've been at a lot of protests with Toronto 350 and other groups trying to draw attention to these investments and try to sort of tar the brands a little bit, if you will. And there's also been campaigns where people say, oh, I'm cutting up my credit card. You know, I also know people who have moved to a credit union. So we're taking a lot of those ideas that already exist and changing it just a little bit by asking people to start a conversation with their bank with the idea that they might move their money later or that they're planning to move their money if their bank doesn't clean up. Because I think one one idea actually here is like the psychology of loss aversion, right? If you move your money, you, the money's already lost to the bank or to the branch manager. They move on. But if you're sitting there with your account or your mortgage and you're saying, I'm going to move this later this year, if you guys don't clean up their act, they're going to really it's going to bug them in a different way, right? So the idea is trying to motivate people who already have an account with the bank, whichever bank you have an account with to get that conversation going and saying, this isn't working for me. I'm going to move to someone else. If you don't clean up this, this investments, these loans of yours. And I think the other thing that makes it a little bit different from some of the divestment campaigns is we're, we're not specifically asking people to divest their own savings. And you have to be careful about this. Cause when you call your bank about this, they'll say, Oh, Oh, We can put you into a fossil free mutual fund or something. That stuff does exist and that's good. You should be in it, but we're really focused on the bank's own loan and lending policies. The Canadian banks, BankTrack did a report last year about fossil fuel policies. Banks could get up to 200 points for having like good plans about this kind of thing for not allowing coal loans. And the Canadian banks got all five out of 200 or below because they just have no policies. They'll put money into the Arctic, they'll put money into coal, fracking, whatever. So the question is not so much like whether you divest your own savings, which you should, you should do that, talk to your advisor, but we really need this big, huge money coming out of the banks to stop going because, and I've talked to friends in finance about this as well. If a bank, if if a company, you sell their stock, their stock price goes down a little bit, it doesn't impact their daily cash flow that much. They're, they're, they, it has some, like, they don't want that to happen, but they can still do a new project, they can do this, they can open a new coal mine, you know? The question that will really stop them in their tracks is, are they getting new loans? And the Canadian banks are continuing to give new loans to all of the worst companies in the world, you know? Like, RBC did have an announcement last October, because they were feeling the pressure saying that they won't, they won't make new loans... To companies that get more than 40% of their revenue from coal, or maybe 45, I don't remember the number. But what you actually realize if you look into it is that there are very few companies like that. Like most coal mining is done by these huge conglomerates that do a lot of other mining, and the coal power plants are run by huge utilities that do a lot of other power plants. So RBC is actually free to keep lending tons of money for new coal projects, even though they have this policy. So the campaign is about like letting banks know that we're aware of where the money is going. We're not going to be fooled by greenwashing uh, and we need them to actually stop doing it because otherwise we don't have a livable planet.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So how can folks get involved? We talked before, you know, that we started recording about this event next week, which is loosely related. But then also the larger campaign. So, maybe talk about the event first, and then we can dive into how folks can get involved in the Bank Switch campaign.
3: Yeah, awesome. So, on, on January 29th, there's an event called Fossil Banks No Thanks. We're promoting Bank Switch during it, but there's a lot of other kind of grassroots activist groups uh, for our kids, the different branches all across the country. A lot of the climate strikers are involved. I know Fridays for Future Toronto is involved, Sustainability Teens, Below2C, Climate Fast in Toronto, like a ton of organizations. Are getting together to all talk about banks and and fossil fuel policies on that day. So on that day, we want people to get online on social media, uh, talk about if you've already moved to a credit union, tell your friends that it's great and that it works fine for you. If you're thinking about it, tell your friends that and use the hashtags fossil banks no thanks and bank switch, and that'll help us sort of build this conversation. We were hoping to do a lot more outdoor things and protests on that day but uh, COVID has shut down a lot of it, especially in uh, Toronto and in Montreal. I think they're still doing some stuff in Vancouver, but it's going to be it's gonna be more of a digital event, the the day of action. So I definitely think people should get involved in that. Uh, and then if you go to our website, climatepledgecollective.org, you'll see a whole bank switch section. Um, the basic ask is that you Contact your branch manager, say that you're going to move your money and, and that includes all your products. Some people say, oh, I don't have I don't have a lot of savings or whatever. But actually the banks will want your loans, they want your negative money more because they're making profits off of that. So if you have a mortgage or if you have student loans, like that's actually going to get their attention more in some ways than if you move just a sort of low interest savings account. So that's okay. Anything that you have with them, say you're moving it. And then sign up. We have a sign up form. Either you can see it from the website, climatepledgecollective.org, or you can go to actionnetwork.org slash form slash bank switch and, and just sign up because we want to have that number of people to say to the banks, oh, look, like this many people with our low level of publicity are already interested in moving to a, a bigger or a better, more sustainable bank. Because the real dream is like the banks, these huge banks are not scared of Climate Pledge Collective, right? They're but what they are scared of is like Scotiabank or BMO. Like if one of those banks decides to make the switch and have a real, like no new fossil fuel loans policy, and then they start advertising it and they maybe they set up a phone number, like call to make an easy switch from your bank to our bank, that's what's gonna really move the other banks, right? So the idea is that we wanna build that number up so they can see, oh, even with a little bit of marketing and sort of grassroots social media stuff, there's this many people we have a, like a couple hundred right now, but we want to see thousands of people signed up so that the banks can realize because I think I talk to people, so many people have already moved to credit unions, so many people know that the banks are doing these bad things, but it's a big thing to move. like there's a huge demand for banking services in Canada that aren't destroying our planet and, and so I think when the banks realize that we'll start to see policy shifts out of them as well.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Matthew Lee Pelkey and the Climate Pledge Collective. Good luck next week and with the campaign. We'll love to have you on the show again sometime soon.
3: Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for all the great work you do.
1: All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.